Twice-delayed launches of its big new rocket may indicate deep problems with NASA's Artemis program. It's planned to get back to the moon and eventually to Mars. The basic guidance the agency uses to manage Artemis may not be suited to such a complex enterprise. That's according to the Government Accountability Office. For more, the GAO's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions, Bill Russell. Bill, good to have you back. Nice to be here, Tom. And you have looked at Artemis. I guess you were looking at it before these launches really got delayed because it takes longer than that to put these reports together. But what do you mean that the fundamental guidance the agency is using is not really suited to something like Artemis? Tell us what's going on here. Absolutely. If you think about what Artemis is, it's a series of missions to ultimately return to the moon, create a sustained lunar presence, and then ultimately on to human exploration of Mars. And to do that, there's a number of systems that have to work seamlessly together. So not just the rocket, the SLS, but there's the ground equipment, the vehicle that gets it to the launch pad. Eventually, you're going to have the human landing system to transport the astronauts to the surface of the moon, spacesuits. So that's a lot of multi-billion dollar systems that each on their own have a lot of technical complexity and sophistication that have to work seamlessly together. So what we've said in our previous work, and we followed up on in in this review, was really how are you going to manage that complexity? One little change in a requirement for one program can have a big impact on another program. So what's that integration piece look like? And what we found in this review is that NASA had done additional steps and made progress to actually better integrate and have a fuller picture of the requirements and the complexities across those systems. That included putting more oversight mechanisms in place, sort of top-down reviews where you're looking at how you're going to sync up all of those efforts. And in terms of the missing guidance, the piece that we wanted to see some improvement on had to do with the schedules. Each of those programs has a complex schedule and lots of effort into developing the various steps. But when you put them all together, you know, for example, the rocket has to be on the launch pad at the right time. You know, the Ryan crew capsule has to be ready to go. How are you going to build those schedules so that you have a predictable launch window? And that's where we thought that NASA could take some additional steps. Yeah, it's a miracle that it even gets to the point where it can be scrubbed, in other words. That's right. A lot goes right to even make it to the launch pad, for sure. So this program then has lots of moving parts, literally. And it sounds like the basic issue is that when you put more than one moving part or you put dozens of moving parts together, there are going to be issues that come up that they just didn't take into account in terms of the schedule. That's right. I mean, the scale and complexity of what NASA is trying to achieve is immense. And so all the tools that you can put in place help, you know, managing risks, looking at risk scoreboards, having really sound scheduling practices are all needed to help manage this level of complexity. So the process of plugging two things together to form part of this larger system of systems, you might say, is what constitutes a launch to the moon. Then they don't build the time in they need at that point of juncture because something inevitably will come up that they couldn't anticipate until you put the two pieces together, the four pieces, the 16 pieces. It gets exponentially more complex. And that's the time that's not in the schedule, do you believe? That's right. That's where we would like to see, for example, an Artemis II, which would be the next mission where you have the astronauts on board to really do an analysis of the key steps that they're going to have to complete, eventually learning from what happens in Artemis One, which hopefully will happen later this month or in October, and then fold that in to have a realistic picture of Artemis II. 
So those are the places where we think with this additional guidance, NASA can get ahead of that issue for the subsequent Artemis missions. And just out of curiosity for the second mission that they were hoping for after this first mission, the second one would have people actually on the top there and fly around the moon, I guess, and come back without landing on the moon. So do you feel that NASA is sufficiently vague or open-ended in the second Artemis launch based on how long it's taking to get the first one? And it may not even happen in October. So all of a sudden the schedule expands to months late, perhaps. And did they figure that into when the second one happens in 23 or 24? Right. The estimate now is that NASA will need about two years from the successful conclusion of Artemis 1 to be ready for Artemis 2. And to help manage that window, things like these integration reviews, these schedule analysis, and the new guidance can help with that. Because ultimately, as you, I think to your point, when you put astronauts on board, that's just another level you know, of safety, of complexity, and you really want to make sure that test goes well. So NASA certainly will factor that in, but these tools can help to have a better window and predictability when you've completed the necessary steps. We're speaking with Bill Russell. He's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the GAO. So what are your major recommendations, though? Can NASA make some changes in the way it plans for these things such that in time to affect the Artemis program, which is, well, it's gotten to the launch pad anyway, into the countdown? Absolutely. So really looking ahead to the next set of Artemis missions, the recommendations were aimed to, one, help develop mission-level schedule guidance. So that would be you know, taking all these individual project schedules and putting them together in a coherent way. And as part of that, doing better collaboration across the centers to help develop that guidance. And we also took a look at some of the longer-term needs in terms of workforce skills. So the Artemis missions are planned to go out to the 2030s. NASA does a great job of planning its workforce needs for the next five years, but uh, we had a recommendation that they might want to think about scenario planning for the types of new skills, new workforce needs to support the systems that they plan to put in place over the next you know, 10 or plus years. Is a component in all of this preserving knowledge that might have been generated a generation earlier in NASA? I mean, the launch that made it to the moon is now, what, 53 years in the past. So I doubt there's anyone working in NASA now that was actually present for that, even though, you know, we all remember it on television, or at least I remember it on television. But is there a knowledge management component to this, do you think? Absolutely. You're going to have workforce attrition over time. We saw that with the retirement of the space shuttle program. That was a lot of knowledge and skill. Those folks eventually retired or left the agency. So like I said, NASA has a good plan for how to handle the next three to five years. But as you build these systems, and they've already awarded contracts that will last into the next 10 years, to add that component of the unique workforce skills you're going to need and how you're going to recruit for that over time. So really just start coming up with that plan now before you're in that environment and you can't locate the folks with those skills or you have a, you know, a brain drain, so to speak, through retirements. And your first recommendation mentions the NASA administrator should ensure that the chief financial officer, in coordination with the mission directorates, develops a schedule and management guidance. That's interesting. This is not all just about technology and engineering. That's right. There are huge billions of dollars in costs involved in these efforts. So 
uh, the way that the NASA organization is set up, the CFO plays a, a key role in some of those aspects where we wanted to call that out as we were making the recommendation. And looking at the four top recommendations, they are all for the NASA administrator. How did the administrator accept these and do they generally agree with what you've laid out here? To NASA's credit, they did agree. They concurred with each of the recommendations and cited some next steps to implement them. Usually within the next year, they plan to make some significant progress, which is great. Is it fair to say that over the history of NASA, it became a premier source of good practices in project and program planning, though? That NASA itself? Yes. Certainly, they've been managing and developing complex systems. If you think about James Webb Space Telescope, that eventually launched and is delivering some amazing science our point has been to take the lessons. They have some impressive achievements and there are some stumbles along the way. So wherever they can learn those lessons and then incorporate them into this next set of ambitious missions is a great thing. Bill Russell is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Nice to be here, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his NASA report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Launch the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.